Good evening. My name is Brandon, for uh, the few of you here who don't know me. Uh, good to meet you. It was good to meet you out there. Um, Pastor D, uh, if you're reading his blog, if you're following up on his blog, he said a couple days ago that he was feeling extra sick, uh, or the word he used was wimpy. Um, so yesterday he calls me and asks if I could teach because he said he didn't feel well enough to come today, and he didn't want to just in case it might be corona. He doesn't think it is. He has no reason to think it is, but in any case. So he asked me yesterday if I would preach, and I said, well, uh, only if I get to do a sermon that I've done before because I don't have enough time to come up with one very quickly. And he said, you know, he goes, I could preach a, month, or a sermon that I did two months ago and they wouldn't remember, so <laughs> it's okay. So this one was from two years ago, so I think we'll be okay. I don't remember two years ago. When he asked if I would preach, I thought to myself, well, what, what sermon do I want to give? And recently I've been thinking about Romans 5 in particular. Um, let me find it. Romans 5, 8 through 10. You don't have to put it up right now, but you can if you want. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved through his life. That verse has been rocking my world for the past year and a half or so, and I've just been thinking about it constantly. And when I pray, I say, God, thank you. Like, you died for me when I was sinning against you. You know, I wasn't on right standing with him. I wasn't, we weren't cool, you know. We were, and I use this uh, when I teach kids or even uh, do evangelism. Um, enemies, fists, enmity, war, right? We, we weren't good together. We were not reconciled, and yet he died for me anyways. That's the great great grace and love and mercy that Jesus has towards us. So I thought that's the sermon that I want to preach, but I like getting the full picture, getting the full scope, understanding why that's such a big deal. Why is the enmity such a big deal? Why is the reconciliation that we get from God such a big deal? It's a big deal because we were his enemies first, and so I'm going to be preaching on that phrase, the enemies of God, for just a little bit, and then we'll finish up with the good news. So we're going to start with the really, really bad news, and then we'll get to the good news. So if you would, pray with me. Lord, thank you that while I was sinning against you, you died for me. Thank you for a new heart. Thank you for the new family that you've given me in the church. Thank you for the new covenant that you've adopted us, not based on our own merits, but based on your merits. Based on your good works, you have redeemed us and made us right with you. Lord, we ask that you prevent us from uh, ever deviating from that, ever believing something else, believing the lies of the enemy that we make ourselves better with you. Somehow we make ourselves more right with you than you've already made us. Lord, uh, prevent us from going down that path of legalism, um, of thinking that we earn right standing with you. Lord, show us through these scriptures today— um, that we don't make ourselves right with you. You make us right with you. Lord, I ask for preventions from distractions. Um, I ask for clarity of speech. Paul said, uh, or prayed, 
asked someone to pray for him that he would speak clearly as he ought to, so I ask for that same clarity. Lord, give us understanding, and through this sermon, I ask that you produce joy in each of us. Amen. I also get nervous, and with nervousness comes cotton mouth, so cheers. Imagine I offered you one of three things. One of three things. I'm like a genie, but instead you get three options, not three different wishes. Imagine I offered you the keys and deed to a house completely paid off in a well, uh, well-to-do neighborhood worth $2.5 million, totally tax-free, it's yours. Okay, that's option one. Option two is a gallon of water. Okay. Option three is a parachute. Which one of those sitting here right now would you take? The house, $2.5 million. Even if you don't like the house, you sell it and you can, I don't know, buy a Lamborghini or whatever. You're not dying of thirst, so that gallon of water doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, what if when I offered this to you, you were in the middle of the desert, dying of dehydration, had no idea when you were going to get your next drink of water? That gallon of water sounds a lot more appealing now, don't it? And that house isn't going to do anything for you, and the parachute's definitely not going to save you in the, in the desert. Okay, so you would probably pick the water. Now, a separate scenario. Imagine you were in the edge of an airplane and someone was about to push you off. Gallon of water's not going to help. $2.5 million house isn't going to help if you're splatted all over the ground. You're going to take the parachute. So, as we understand more about our scenario, our decisions happen to change. What we value as most important changes. That's what I'm hoping to portray by that. So, allow me in the following time to make the case for the thing that you need most. Because right now, you thought, I need the house. In the desert, you think, I need the water. In the edge of an airplane, you think, I need a parachute. So, as our circumstances changes, what we realize that we need changes. So, need is a relative term. Kids say that they need toys. Adults need a job. People on life support need the ventilator. But what do, what do we, right now, need more than anything? There at the top of your notes, it says, our greatest need, without a doubt, is justification. Justification is right standing before God. It's just a big theological term. Justify means right. Ication means to be made. So to be made right with God. Justification is being declared righteous in God's sight. Justification is a legal declaration in God's courtroom of not guilty. Our greatest need, without a doubt, is justification. Number one. We will all die, and God is the judge who will judge each of us. So why is justification our greatest need? Number one, we will all die, and God is the judge who will judge each of us. And as I said, this is, I'm starting off with the really bad news, the sobering, true, accurate depiction of where we are apart from Jesus. The word gospel means good news, and this good news is only good because of the uh, surpassing the really, really bad news that preceded it. Good news is, not, is just plain old news if it does not cure, remedy, or fix bad news. A diagnosis of cancer-free of cancer 
is really, really good news if you had previously had a prognosis of one month left. A jury verdict of not guilty is good news for you if you were facing death row. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So death is coming. Death is coming for each of us. It is coming as our arresting officer to bring us before God, to bring us into God's courtroom, and there's no evasion of this officer. It doesn't matter how much money you have, Bill Gates is going to die and stand before God. It doesn't matter how much prestige you have, Queen Elizabeth is going to die and stand before God. It does not matter how big of a house you had, what your bank account said, how many placards or trophies you had on your wall, what car you drove, what your grade report said. It doesn't matter what position at work you had, if you were the CEO or the burger flipper. It doesn't matter if you live your best possible life here on earth, if afterwards you, stand, you die and stand before God in his courtroom and are found guilty. This life is a vapor and a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And none of us are promised tomorrow. And I've seen, I was an EMT for five years, I've seen children ripped from their parents' loving grasp by the cold touch of death. They didn't expect it, they didn't plan for it, yet it happened anyways. 100 out of 100 die. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Number two, we need justification more than anything else because death is coming. We need justification more than anything else because judgment is coming. So my goal for this message is not to be some hellfire brimstone sort of preacher, make you feel bad um, about everything that you've ever done. Um, My goal is for us to pause, to take a step back from where we're at and to look, to really look at what salvation is. Salvation from what? When we as Christians stop and look at what God has saved us from, I think it will, I believe that it will increase our love, our gratitude, our thankfulness, and our zeal for him. And for those of us who are not yet trusting in Christ, if there are any here, um, there's no, no more important of a message that you could hear than this. Number three, God is just. He is the epitome and author of justice. Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly arrows. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. This is God we're talking about. God feels indignation every single day at who? Verse 12 says, at the unrepentant sinner. Psalm 9, 7 through 8, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Number four, God is not a wicked judge. He is a good, upright, just judge. And I just wanted to tell sound guys and, or clicker people and you guys, not all the scriptures are going to be up here. 
they should all be in your notes, so you can take it home and look them up later. Some of them I'm going to be going through really, really fast, and they, probably, they might not be able to keep up anyways. Actually, they would. They're really good. So number four, God is not a wicked judge. He is a good, upright, just judge. So imagine with me a situation, and this is a little graphic and a little extreme, I understand, but imagine with me someone broke into a house, uh, took advantage of the person living there, beat them up, and then murdered them, okay? Then they get caught, and they're standing before the judge, and they say to the judge, yes, I've been caught red-handed, but I feel really bad about it. I feel really bad. I feel guilty, and I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I, yes, I was caught. I'll never do it again. And up until now, that's the only crime I've ever committed. I've never done another crime. That was the only one. Up until now, I've lived a life of generosity and piety. I built orphanages in Africa. I dug wells in Guatemala, etc., etc., etc. And as such, I think I'm a pretty good person. And because I'm a good person, judge, I think that you should let me go. I expect that you're going to forgive me, commute my death sentence, and let me go. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is. They say, if I just say sorry for my sin, it just disappears. It's just gone. A lot of people think that's what Christianity is. So now, how horribly wicked would that judge be if he let that person go? If that was your family member who that criminal did that to, you would expect justice to be enacted, rightly so. We all have that idea of justice innately in us, and if you don't believe me, take a toy from a two-year-old and they're going to scream, mine, 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 right? Like, it's not right. You shouldn't have taken that from me. That judge would be just as wicked, just as evil, and just as guilty as the murdering rapist was, even if that was the only crime that murderer had ever committed. And this is what people think will happen to them when they die. They think, yeah, I've committed a few sins. God will forgive me. Psalm 10, 12 through 15. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call into account? You will not call me into account? But you do see. For you take note of mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the, help, or the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness into account until you find none. It doesn't sound very thrilling to have God break your arm, does it? Or God call into account all the things that we've done, does it? Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice. Because God is just, because, is this the next point? Next point, because God is just? No, I might have messed up. That's my fault, not Miss Krause's. Because God is just, he will punish us for our sin. Because of God's justice, because he is just, he will punish us for our sins. And most people, uh, most humans, tend to think that we're pretty good people. 
right? Just like that person standing before the judge, we think we're not all that bad. And a few, it was a while ago now, I was at a food truck and I was talking to the owner and he had a Rush tattoo, the band from, you know, the 70s onwards. And I was like, I like Rush. Maybe I can use this as a conversation starter and talk to him about the gospel. And I did. And so we get into talking about the gospel and he ends up saying what 98% of people that I talk to who are not believers say. He says, yeah, I sinned, but so has everyone else. So have Christians. I know plenty of Christians and they're sinners too. And after all, I'm not as bad as like Hitler. Hitler deserves to go to hell or maybe a rapist. A rapist deserves to go to hell or fill in the blank with whatever sin we think is so vile that God can't forgive that. And he said this, and if God can't forgive me, he isn't worthy of worship and I don't want to be forgiven by him. What it comes down to is this, compared to most other, or compared to other people, most of us think we aren't that bad. But in reality, it doesn't matter how bad you and I think we are. It matters how bad the judge of the universe thinks we are. My opinion really counts for nothing. And as such, your opinion really counts for nothing. The Supreme Court, they flatter themselves calling themselves the Supreme Court because there's a court above them, God's court, right? It matters how bad God thinks you are. Romans 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Are we there? Romans 2, 1 through 5. Thank you, sir. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder, and whoever, commits, or whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we just heard from Jesus that you don't even have to physically commit adultery. If you look at someone with lust, that includes pornography, you commit adultery with your heart. If you hate someone or call them a fool, you are guilty of murder because God looks at the heart. He looks at the intentions. He looks at our motives. If you hate someone, call them a fool. You are guilty of murder. Coveting someone else's stuff, their house, their wife, their spouse, their car, whatever, is the same as, ha- or, I'm sorry, is the same as thievery and idolatry. He looks at our intentions and he looks at our motives. What he's saying here is if you do something once, that's what you're guilty for. If you murder someone once, what does that make someone? A murderer, right? 
If someone murdered someone that you love, we would say that person is a murderer. If someone raped someone, we'd say that person is a rapist. So now let's turn that same logic in on ourselves. Have you ever told a lie? So what does that make you? A liar. Me too. (laughs) Have you ever stolen or even wanted someone else's stuff? Coveting. Have you ever coveted someone else's stuff? Probably. What would that make you? A thief. If you've ever so much as hated anyone, God sees you as a murderer. If you've looked at someone with lust, you don't even have to commit adultery. If you've looked at someone with lust, he, com- or he says that we are adulterers. Have we ever taken God's name in vain? Whether that's cussing or whether that's, there's a whole other slew of things that that means, but that is blasphemy. We would be called blasphemers. So now, you and I, having committed all these things, having broken God's law over and over and over again, as it says in James, he who stumbles at one point breaks all of it. They're lawbreakers. We are lawbreakers because we broke one law. We, having committed all these things, are lying, thieving, blasphemous, murderous, adulterers at heart. Lying, thieving, blasphemous, murderous, adulterers at heart. Keep in mind that I said I'm giving you the bad news before the good news. Romans 1, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. When it says them, it's talking about you and me. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Here's the kicker. Though they know God's righteous decree, God's righteous judgment, that those who practice such things deserve to die— deserve to die, not only, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I'm going to say that again. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, we not only do those things, but we give approval to those who practice them. Romans 3, 10 through 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes, asps, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So you and I, the very first time that we sinned, the very first time that we violated God's law, we offended his holy, righteous nature. We declared ourselves independent from his sovereign rule, and we became rebels, enemies of God. So now what? What happens to those who are enemies of God? If God is a good, righteous, just judge, what what makes that bad news? Why is that bad news? Because you and I are both 
rebels, liars, thieves, murderers, blasphemers, adulterers, fornicators, and the list goes on, right? Especially for me. So what awaits us? What is the righteous penalty? What is the right payment that God owes us for these things? Next point, number five, what have we earned? What have we earned? Wrath, fury, tribulation, distress, condemnation, judgment, tumult, God's anger and wrath being poured out on us like fiery coals, and ultimately hell. Ezekiel twenty-two thirty-one. Therefore I, God, have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their ways upon their heads, declares Yahweh God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity, of men. Romans 2, 8 through 9, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. John 3.18, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemned already. John 3.36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The God who made the universe, the God who made stars, the God who made black holes and everything big about this universe, just imagine the vastness of it, who created that like it was basically nothing, spoke it into existence, he has wrath towards us. Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. Romans 2, 16, on that day, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus. Ezekiel 7, 7 through 8, your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come, the day is near, a day of tumult, not of joyful shouting. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged, judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And they were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what awaits us? Wrath, fury, tribulation, distress, condemnation, judgment, tumult, God's anger and wrath being poured out on us like fiery coals, punishment, and ultimately hell, the lake of fire. Number six, God by no means owes us forgiveness. He only owes us condemnation. 
I want us, I want me, to always have a realistic view of who we are in relationship to God. I don't want to pander to you and say, you know, it's all okay, everything's gravy, and and yet in reality, if I was a doctor and I knew that you had some type of cancer that that we had the cure to, I knew you had it, and I said, hey, everything's fine. I'm sure you'll feel better in a few days. And then you go on to die. I'd be a pretty bad doctor because I tried to lie to you and give you something that felt good, you know, news that felt good instead of news that was reality. News that is reality. So the reality is this, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And now this is the greatest problem. All these things that we've talked about is the greatest problem imaginable. How can we, the wretched, vile, miserable sinners that we are, ever possibly hope to be forgiven? How can we ever hope to be justified when we're caught red-handed, when we're outright guilty? We have earned condemnation. We have earned judgment. We have earned these things like a paycheck. We sin, God gives the judgment. He's righteous and just, so he gives everyone what they deserve. God's law, God's justice, and God's holiness, and the fact that he's a righteous, good judge, demand that we be punished. And almost every one of my favorite verses start with the phrase, but God. That is where we were. That is the reality of where we were. Death row, deserving of hell, but God. It doesn't say, but Brandon did something about it. It doesn't say, but Jim did something about it. It doesn't say, but Bill did something about it. But God did something about it. And this is where the beauty of the gospel the glorious gospel of Jesus shines most brightly against the dark, hopeless, awful backdrop of our sinfulness and what we deserve. The good news is only good because of the backdrop of the desperately bad news that God is just, God is righteous, and we are not. But God, though he has every right to, does not leave us here. And that's where the Romans 5, 8 through 10 comes in. God, despite my sin, despite my rebellion, God has great patience and love towards me. Not because we're lovable. Not because we are inherently worth something. We were enemies. We were worse than nothing. We were enemies. We said no. We gave the middle finger to this guy and said, no, I'm doing things my way, not yours. We were enemies. We were rebels. We were not lovable. And that's why this is called the good news. This is the best news possible. Even though I was an enemy, even though you were an enemy, even though some people coming here Sunday, Saturday, Wednesday, even, I don't know, are an enemy of God, he lovingly, graciously, mercifully made a way for you to be saved of the judgment that you deserve. That is Christianity. Number seven, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that despite my exceeding sinfulness, God is willing to and made a way to forgive me.
And this is where Romans 5, 8 through 10 comes in. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, I have a friend who says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinning against God, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, made right with God, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. Maybe these are the verses that Miss Krause said she wasn't able to get on. God sprung on her as well. So, Colossians 1, uh, 12 through 13, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Titus 3, 3 through 6, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, always look out for those verses. It's kind of corny, but the but verses, look out for those. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Of all the paragraphs that I wrote, this is the most important one. So, this, if we hear nothing else, hear this. Despite our sin... Despite all of our ugliness, our pride, our selfishness, our lust, our hatred, our wickedness, despite all of those things, he, according to nothing that you could offer him, according to none of your righteous works, nothing whatsoever is the basis for his forgiveness of our sin, aside from except for the great grace that he displayed in offering Jesus Christ to die on the cross in my place, taking my sin upon him, taking the full wrath of God that I deserve, that you deserved from me, put it on himself, the full weight of wrath that God had stored up for thousands of years of mankind's sin, was poured out on him, by him dying the death that you deserved, that I deserved, being buried and rising again three days later, vindicating that God had accepted his payment on my behalf. According to that, the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you and me and every other human being has the opportunity to be forgiven, for our death sentence to be commuted, for us to be justified with God, to be made right in God's sight. Next point, Jesus' sacrifice 
on my behalf is the only basis for justification. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 1 John 3.16, By this we know that God is love, that he laid down his life for us. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. 1 John 2, 2. He, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. A propitiation means payment. It actually means wrath-removing payment. There was wrath upon us and his propitiation, his payment, absolved that from us. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Colossians 2, 14, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Ephesians 1, 17, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his riches of grace, according to the riches of his grace, giving us something that we don't deserve and not giving us the thing that we do deserve. What did we deserve? Wrath, fury, tribulation, distress. He didn't give that to you. He didn't, and what's fascinating is that he didn't even just take it away and make you a blank slate. He didn't cancel your debt and leave your bank account at zero, your moral bank account at zero. He canceled your negative one million debt made Jesus pay that, and then put a big fat deposit of perfect righteousness in your account. So not only does he remove the wrath and the sin, he gives you the righteousness of Christ. He has made you, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, I believe, I don't have it written down, it says, you have been made the righteousness of God. In him we've been made the righteousness of God. He doesn't just leave you as a blank slate, he gives you positive infinite, however infinitely righteous Christ is, that's how righteous this is. Might border, it doesn't border on blasphemy. Some people would think, wow, there's no way. Me? Righteous? Not my words, Jesus's words. Take it up with him. You are as righteous as Christ is. It's called the great exchange. He took my sin, so here we are, with all our sin, ugliness, righteousness, pride, ev- or unrighteousness, every sin that we had, here's Christ, perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness. This theological phrase is called the great exchange. He took all these things and put them on Jesus. And then he took the perfect righteousness of Christ, took them off of them, off of him, and put it on us. So it's not even going from zero to hero. It's going from enemy of God to perfectly beloved child. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And a lot of people have that mixed up. A lot of people coming to church think, well, I'm not right with God because I didn't read my Bible this week. I'm not right with God because I didn't do X, Y, Z. Me and God are kind of in a weird state right now. That's performance-related righteousness. That's us thinking that what we do is what makes us righteousness with, righteous with God, as opposed to what Christ has already done. So, my goal in all of this is to give us a realistic, real picture of what 
life is. It's better than we could possibly imagine. When we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. I don't think I have another point, do I? I have one more point. Okay. Oh, number nine? Yes. So, with this in mind, what must we do? How do we appropriate this ransom? He made the payment. How do we apply that to us now? Nine, you must repent and put your faith, your trust, in Christ alone for your salvation. Whenever you read the New Testament, you'll hear four words used pretty interchangeably. Um, Believe, receive, trust, and faith. Believe, receive, trust, faith. Uh, The book of John uses receive and believe pretty frequently. Uh, Paul uses trust and faith. They all mean a very similar thing. I trust in him. I don't trust in myself. I trust in his good, righteous, perfect work. I don't trust in my own goodness, my own righteousness. I trust him, not me. It's moving from self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness on my behalf. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And this next verse, uh, Romans 3.21-25, I think just encapsulates it so beautifully. I mean, that's why people wrote books this big about this one verse, or not one verse, one passage. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God that belongs to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. Received by faith. It's simply trusting the most trustworthy person. The Bible says that it's not even possible for God to lie. Why would we want to trust anyone else? I can't trust myself. I make the wrong decision daily on a lot of things right? And if we're being honest, you make bad decisions a lot of the times too. We're not always perfectly uh, trustworthy. The one person who is, is God, and he says, trust in me, agree with me about sin. Repent just means believe the same thing about sin that God does. He sees sin as wicked and vile and gross, which it is. And when we agree with him, that's repentance. Are we going to slip up still? I'm not teaching sinless perfectionism. There's a lot of people, a lot of cults that do teach sinless perfectionism that you'll, be, you'll never sin again. I don't teach that. We don't teach that here. Just look at D's blog. He sins a lot. Um, in any case, point being, I'll end with this. Titus 3, 3 through 6. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy. Thank you that while I was your enemy, you died for me. Thank you for the glorious 
awesome, great gospel that you've given to us that it's not based on my good works. It's not based on my ability or my performance, but it's based on what you've done, and you freely offer that as a gift to us. And Lord, for those of us who are Christians, who are born again, we trust you. Lord, we say that you're trustworthy. We're not trustworthy. If we're faithless, you remain faithful. You said that no one can snatch us out of your hand. Lord, thank you for everything. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for my new family, the church. Thank you for being my new father. Lord, protect us from the lies of the enemy that would make us look inwardly for righteousness. Lord, may we look to you, you only for righteousness. Thank you for the gift of justification. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of the church. We love you. Amen.